kind of society gets produced if you follow an objective idea of beauty? I think a free one. Because uh, people, again, will do for love what the government can never make them do. Uh, The Soviet Union could never make the kind of art that the Orthodox Church in Russia produced voluntarily. Uh, And they tried really hard. That was the voice of Dr. John Mark Reynolds. He is president of the St. Constantine School. And he's here with us today on Radio Free Acton to talk about truth and beauty. And we're excited to talk with him here on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's my pleasure to be your host today. I'll be joined uh, for that interview by Father Ben Johnson, uh, who is a uh, senior editor here at the Acton Institute, does a lot of uh, writing for the Acton Power blog and also Religion and Liberty magazine. Uh, We will get to that interview in just a few moments. Before we do that, though, we've got some great events coming up here during the month of May that I want to highlight uh, for you uh, on our events calendar, which is available, of course, at acton.org slash events. Uh, We have a couple great Acton Lecture Series events coming up. We'll start off with uh, a May 11th event, and this is a big one. We will have uh, Leonard Leo with us here at the Acton Building. Uh, if you don't know who Leonard Leo is, you probably should, especially if you're an engaged citizen, and if, if especially if you have concerns about the direction of the federal judiciary. Leonard Leo is executive vice president and a board member at the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies, and he is uh, really right in the middle of things uh, right now as it relates to judicial appointments uh, and the Trump administration. In fact, the New Yorker magazine Uh, In uh, an article entitled The Conservative Pipeline to the Supreme Court, they uh, give Leonard Leo credit, depending on their perspective, it might not be credit, it might be blame, but uh, they say Leonard Leo is now responsible for a third of the Supreme Court with the ascension of Neil Gorsuch to replace Justice uh, Antonin Scalia. Uh, Leonard Leo is a man uh, right in the mix, and he's going to come and talk to us about uh, the Trump administration and the federal judiciary. Uh, and, and presumably that means we'll hear about uh, potential upcoming uh, picks for the Supreme Court, uh, maybe some inside information about whether or not there actually is going to be another open seat on the court this summer. There's a lot of talk about that. Uh, but uh, if anyone would know something about that, and if anyone could give us a great perspective on the Trump administration's view of the federal judiciary, uh, it would be Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society. Again, the date is May 11th. Uh, doors open 11.30. Lecture starts at 12. $15 for individual tickets. If you're a student, we cut that price down to 10 You get lunch, you get a great lecture, and uh, a time of some great Q&A as well. So be here with us May 11th. I also want to let you know about a May 18th lecture featuring Lawrence Reed, president of the Foundation for Economic Education. He always uh, delivers a great lecture. He's kind of one of our regulars on our Acton Lecture Series circuit, uh, and he always he always does a great job. He'll be talking this time about real heroes Inspiring True Stories of Courage, Character, and Conviction. Lawrence Reed always draws a big crowd, so be sure to get your registration in soon at acton.org events. And once again, 11.30 doors open, uh, noon lunchtime uh, lecture, and $15 per person, 10 bucks uh, if you're a student. And again, Lawrence Reed is always great, always does a fantastic lecture, and there's bound to be some great Q&A afterwards as well. So don't miss out on the opportunity to see two great lectures coming up here as we wrap up the spring portion of the Acton Lecture Series for 2017. With that housekeeping out of the way, let's uh, turn to our interview with Dr. John Mark Reynolds. He is the president of the St. Constantine School, 
You can find them online. Uh, the school is at stconstantine.org. That's all spelled out, stconstantine.org. And uh, joined in this interview today in the Acton Studios by Father Ben Johnson. Uh, Father Ben is uh, a senior editor here at the Acton Institute, and you'll find a lot of his writing on the Acton Power blog at blog.acton.org. He's also doing a lot of work uh, for Religion and Liberty magazine, our periodical that we publish here at the Acton Institute. He focuses on transatlantic issues, which is a a new area of focus for religion and liberty. Father Ben has that uh, in his purview, and we're excited to see uh, more writing in that vein coming up soon. But for now, for today, we are going to focus on questions of beauty. Is beauty uh, purely subjective? Is it something that's real and can be understood? Well, let's find out. We'll talk with Dr. John Mark Reynolds of the St. Constantine School here on Radio Free Acton. Well, we are back on Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute, and we are pleased and excited to be joined today by Dr. John Mark Reynolds, President at the St. Constantine School. Dr. Reynolds, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And also in the studio with us today for the first time on Radio Free Acton, Father Ben Johnson, a senior editor here at the Acton Institute, focusing on transatlantic issues, doing a lot of writing for our blog at uh, blog.acton.org and uh, the uh, uh, Religion and Liberty magazine as well. So, Father Ben, welcome. Uh, good to have you here. Always good to be with you, Mark. And, uh, uh, John, you were here at, at, you're here at the Acton Institute as part of the Acton Lecture Series. Uh, you were talking today about uh, beauty and uh, and uh, the destruction of the individual. So let's let's talk about beauty. And we know, of course, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, uh, and so that right. that ends our podcast, I guess. So, Thanks for joining us. Yeah, the shortest podcast ever. Great. Uh, <laughs> unless you had something you wanted to say. I we now know you're a Bolshevik. That's what oh. that's what we get out of this. Well, um, I think that's the first time I've been accused of being a Bolshevik yeah, on the I, podcast. On the podcast. Yes. No. I, here's here's the deal. Uh, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. It exists. It's a real value, like goodness and truth, and subjectivity. The fact that I can pick anything and call it beautiful uh, helps undermine a culture. And it helps undermine a culture in this way. I'd be very simple about this. Uh, people will do for love what they would not do for money, or it would be very difficult, very expensive to pay them to do for money. So my grandmother would take care of my grandfather, even when he was very frail and were taking care of him was unpleasant and would have kept doing it because she loved him. And if we had had to pay someone to give the same kind of care, First of all, we know it wouldn't have been the same because it wouldn't have come from somebody who loved my grandfather. But secondly, it would have been enormously expensive and we would have had the problems of good caregivers and bad caregivers and things like that. So people will do for love what they won't do for money. And love comes from a recognition of beauty. Uh, when you see beauty, you love it. Uh, when we go see a beautiful work of art, uh, the reason we probably wrongly want to go take a little plastic version of, you know, Michelangelo's David home with us or a copy of a beautiful art work is because we love it and we want to possess it. We want to have it as part of our lives. Uh, and even if we make mistakes about it, that still moves a lot of what we do as human beings. So I'm a free market guy. I love capitalism. I love what capitalism does for us. But notice capitalism works best. I mean, it's the whole point of the Acton Institute uh, when not everything has to be monetized because uh, some things we do just for the joy of it. No one pays me to teach my children, even though I get paid to teach. 
I teach my children for free, not because somebody's making me, but because I love my kids. You, you say that, and I think about my kids and how oftentimes I, I, I don't want to teach them. I want them to go away, but, but right. I, also, I also know because I'm their father and I love them, uh, even even when they're not being lovable, I know that they have value and they uh, they have a, a, a direct importance in my life because the, just intrinsically, I know that they are my children and, and and I love them. Yeah, and because because my daughters are my daughters and my sons are my sons, when they were born and I looked at them, I uh, they may not have looked the way babies look on baby food commercials, <laughs> yes. but I loved them because I saw through. Uh, superficial false expectations put in me by the culture. This is what a baby looks like, and they never show you a newborn. Uh, and so it's a real shock the first time a dad sees a newborn. I watched all my kids get born, and and it was a little bit like a bad science fiction movie at first. You thought, yeah. Uh, what's, and, what's that red splotchy right, thing? <laughs> yeah. Ooh, how did something beautiful like my wife produce this? Uh, oh, it's me. It's all my fault. <laughs> yeah, there you go, yes. Uh, but no, I mean, no dad, in fact looks at his kids and says, wow, I have ugly kids because we come to see the real beauty they have. And it isn't just because we're overlooking their faults. It's because uh, we're motivated by the fact that our children to see the way they really look. So if somebody at school would say about my daughter, you're unattractive, I didn't just think in my head, well, that person has a different subjective opinion than I do. I thought they were wrong because I knew my daughter was beautiful. And notice the difference, the difference between uh, I go to school, I'm a girl, and somebody tells me I'm fat, but I know I'm created in the image of God, and that I'm really objectively beautiful, and that that's the way women in our family look, and that's a great thing. That's a different, we're not talking about someone with a disease or something like that that's gone awry, they're just, it's a different model of beauty. It's not the stick-thin person that we see in all the advertisements. It's easier to handle the fact that Bobby has bad taste because he thinks I'm fat than to think, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. So if Bobby thinks I'm ugly, I, that's about the only truth there is. Let me, let me drill down a little bit here because you said something in your lecture today that, that stuck with me because it's something that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, here on the podcast, and that it, it, it gets to the question of truth, I think, is is the nugget uh, at the center here. But yes. you said that the sexual politics that we see today are a symptom of a cultural decay. They're not the problem in and of themselves. They're, they're a symptom of a larger problem. And and a couple of weeks ago, we talked with uh, John Stone Street of the Colson Center here. Yes, and great guy. And he, he talked about, you know, look, you know, I don't want to talk about sex anymore. I'm sick of talking about sex. I wish we didn't have to. But Bill, Bill Nye, the science guy, has done oh, the nearly God. impossible and made sex boring. Oh, my word. I, I mean, uh, it's uh, just it's a terrible thing. Just but, by bringing up that uh, that clip, you may have ruined this podcast. Yeah, that yeah, that was exactly one of the right. worst things I've seen. And, and people ever. should should not go watch it because it would act as I, I don't know if he intended this. But Bill Nye talking about sex is, in fact, effective birth control because it, it's just, I can't it's argue just with that. terrible. Terrible. But secular cult, commodifying sex, commodifying everything is uh, the natural result of saying, well, there's no truth to it. Uh, we don't commodify people anymore because we think of it as morally evil to sell people. So we don't say, you know, we can sell people as commodities. But if we don't think that beauty exists, then we can begin to commodify it and we can try to sell anything. Uh, however ugly, uh, as if it's beautiful, try to convince people, for example, that they all should be skinny. 
and then women who are not skinny can spend billions of dollars trying to achieve something they never will. And then about 20 years later, curves can be in again. And women who are skinny and who fit the 1920s clothing can suddenly decide they need to look like Marilyn Monroe and buy all kinds of products to look like Marilyn Monroe uh, and fail. And this cycle can go on forever. And now the wonderful thing about the net is we can get the cycle going multiple times in one generation. And with surgery, we can put everybody under the knife so that they can look like Barbie. And this is not good for us. Uh, and it's uh, the problem is not the free market. It's the problem that free markets can't function with wicked people or people that don't have the right ideas. It brings to mind Ecclesiastes and the chasing after the wind. If, if you spend your life uh, devoted to secular standards of beauty or secular standards of virtually anything, uh, you're going to be wasting your entire life because they change so often and there's no there's no substance to them. Yeah, you end up with, and my very good friends who are Mormons, I apologize for this example, but when my girls were growing up, we called it the Mormon prom dress problem because we could Google the phrase Mormon prom dress and what we discovered was they were very modest, but they were quite ugly. Now, I've been told by my Mormon friends that this has actually been sold, but I, who knows? Uh, my girls are all grown up, so I haven't, I haven't had to buy dresses of this sort uh, in a while. Um, modesty, you'll notice, is culturally subjective. And then oddly, you find the church spends way too much time talking about what is modest and what is not. Well, my mother has traveled all around the world and had been in countries where uh, what would be considered modest here is, is highly immodest. And in other countries where uh, it's just the opposite. So modesty is kind of in the eye of the beholder. It's the way you were raised. Uh, on the other hand, beauty is not. Uh, I think that if you take a rose to any culture, even a culture that doesn't have roses, and you show people a rose, it might not be their favorite flower because they didn't grow up with it, but they'll recognize its beauty. What is the role of subjectivity? Where does subjectivity come into play? Um, I think um, subjectivity is a matter of your taste. And so often when I talk about this, people get really mad at me or they get worried because they think I'm going to take away their right to like things more than other things. But if you prefer, uh, I get asked, well, is Beethoven more beautiful than Bach? First of all, I'm not a musician, so I'm not competent to answer that question. But second, I don't care if you like one beautiful thing more than another. All women are objectively beautiful. They're created in the image of God. But I really shouldn't think about that very much because I have a preference for one woman, namely my wife. Well, you've discussed a little bit why it's important to talk about uh, objective beauty. And I think if you were to talk about um, the triad that we've always talked about in classical uh, history, which is the good, the true, and the beautiful, people would always talk, if, if you said there's such a thing as objective truth, everyone would agree. Yes. If you said there's objective good, you know, moral good and moral evil, Christian and, and uh, religious people would agree. But when it comes to beauty, that would be the one that trying to say uh, that it's definitive or that there is such a thing is, is an argument that even if people believe in it, they would take a pass on defending. Why do you think it's so important that we have a, an, a, and recognize an objective standard for beauty in the world? Well, I think, first of all, we think about beauty a lot more than we think about all those other things. I mean, as I go through my day, maybe I'm uniquely blessed but there are wrong things I want to do or wrong thoughts that I want to sit and meditate on. But it's not that high of a percentage of the thing, things I think about. Uh, I mostly think about practical things uh, throughout my day. And the moral choices I make are kind of on autopilot. They're not that controversial. Uh, on the other hand, beauty motivates me all the time. And people think about how they look, how something looks. And we're surrounded consciously or unconsciously by beauty. 
Uh, and so if you're working in an ugly cubicle room all the time, my argument would be that you will have a less pleasant and maybe less productive experience than if you work in a beautiful place. So I think it's very foundational. I know, Father, you're in a church uh, where the Orthodox Church, I'm, I happen to be Eastern Orthodox, doesn't let the pastors just design their own churches uh, because you end up with churches that are ugly when that happens because just because you're a priest doesn't mean you're a trained artist. Uh, and so instead, there's a way to build an Orthodox church. So often people will come to Orthodoxy and say, one reason I came is because of the beauty. So I think I think we live in a society that's actually beauty deprived. Uh, and so that people will often do bad things as a result of becoming attracted to beauty. But they can also be led to do good things uh, because they're attracted to beauty. Yes. And of course, when it comes to Orthodoxy and beauty, of course, the quotation that always comes to mind is the Russian delegation yes. in Hagia Sophia saying, we, we only know that uh, their God dwells among men, for we cannot forget that beauty. And uh, the Archbishop Anastasios of Albania, uh, which, of course, is a society that was um, leveled by communism perhaps more than any other, uh, particularly in terms of beauty, uh, he believes that uh, beauty would, would save the world. And so he's trying his best to reinstall the idea of beauty in Albania. Yes. And uh, the way that that brings people to God. And I wonder, uh, in, in um, a society that um, uh, recognizes beauty and truth, uh, particularly, I understand your uh, your background is in Plato. You did yes. your research in Plato. The Platonic ideas you have the Platonic form, and then beauty is um, objective uh, is done in an objective way, one way or another, to a certain right. degree on Earth. Right. Um, what kind of a society does it produce if you have that idea that uh, we're always striving toward, but never quite getting the form of beauty here on Earth, versus um, to use a somewhat dated cultural reference, I'm okay, you're okay. And I need to be constantly reaffirmed in uh, the fact that I am beautiful as I am and my choices are beautiful. Well, I think we think it will be liberating. So whenever I talk about this, people think I'm going to tell them what to do or exercise state power. You know, the cult, the cult of beauty. We're going to have the Department of Beauty uh, going around beautifying things. Uh, notice we don't have to do that. If people are correctly educated, they'll create beauty on their own. In fact, I would argue you have to be educated pretty hard to not create beauty. Uh, if you're left alone, because people will tend uh, to be attracted to beauty and tend not to be attracted to ugliness. Um, also, I should hasten to say ugly art is OK, as if anyone needs permission to produce it, because some things are just ugly and we have to express ugliness uh, in the art we produce. So it's not as if everything has to be sweet and sunshiny uh, and beautiful in that way. Uh, that would be inappropriate. There's a crush note that occurs in a lot of beautiful orchestration uh, and is necessary. So what kind of society gets produced if you follow an objective idea of beauty? I think a free one, because uh, people, again, will do for love what you, the government can never make them do. Uh, the Soviet Union could never make the kind of art that the Orthodox Church in Russia produced voluntarily. Uh, and they tried really hard. Uh, but the old joke was, if it's a beautiful building in Russia, it was built during the czarist period. Uh, and the Soviets just never could master this. Um, if people want to see the comparison, here's what I would suggest. Go to any multi-faith website. I blog for Pathios. And look at one of the religious parts of the blog. And then look at the secular part of the blog, the atheist or the non-religious. And what you'll see is the non-religious blog is almost entirely made up of, not picking on my colleagues at Pathios, but this is true there, uh, of negativity. 
we don't like Christians, we don't like Muslims, we don't like this, or this was ugly, or growing up I had a bad experience. Whereas if you go to the religious websites, or even a secular website um, that's gotten sort of beyond what we might call folk atheism, uh, you'll see a real striving for beauty and very little negativity. I mean, okay, atheism is false. I write that blog post every once in a while. I'm an apologist. I try to argue for free men and free markets and for, you know, the Orthodox Christian faith. But mostly I'm just writing about my life and beautiful things. And and I think it produces a more well-rounded culture. Now, when you're speaking about beauty, uh, you used exactly the um, the metaphor and the example that I was going to. I guess not a metaphor; it's an objective reality, which is Soviet architecture versus Tsarist architecture. Um, when you're looking at those two societies, it, it sort of brings up this dichotomy that uh, uh, beauty, if it's objective, can be appreciated corporately. Everyone can appreciate beauty, and yet it's produced almost uh, 100% individualistically. The the uh, the worst way to produce anything is by committee if you want it to be good and beautiful. Uh, what does that say about uh, the uh, the sort of um, f- the ne- the necessity for freedom to produce beauty? Well, I, because we're souls created in the image of God, I, I think that that two things are true. First of all, uh, left to ourselves, we should produce beauty, but because the world isn't the way God created it, because we're broken, uh, we really have to be reminded and educated to pursue beauty to get beyond ourselves. So there is a role in the community, particularly in education to cultivate in us more sophisticated tastes. But notice the more that's imposed from the outside and the less it's natural from parents and the church and and school at a very local level, the more it's imposed from the outside, the less it takes. You know, we're now going to go to the ministry of culture and learn to be cultured uh, just means I endure and give the right answers on the quiz and make, you know, socially realistic art because I have to. Uh, but it doesn't have any deep effect. So the weird thing about objectivity is if we can all agree on a norm we're striving for, we can essentially leave everyone alone. Uh, You didn't need drug laws of a certain sort in West Virginia when my grandfather was a little boy because you could have put bales of some of the stuff they're struggling with now on the front door of their church and nobody would have taken it. Now they had troubles with alcoholism and everything else, but notice the pursuit of certain ideals minimize those problems. We're never going to live in paradise, but you can minimize uh, problems. This is where I think Mandeville has something to say. Uh, Yes, there will be red light districts in a society pursuing beauty, uh, and we really don't close them down because uh, it would produce an uglier, more status culture than we can tolerate. So we tolerate the fact that some people will produce ugliness, uh, because mostly they won't, and we'll muddle through. It's very English. I have a very English view of reality. We'll just muddle through. Stiff upper lip. Yeah, yes. that's exactly right. And and some things will go wrong. Uh, 99% of what we write will be crap, if you'll just pardon me, and then 1% will be good. I doubt if I ever write anything that's truly beautiful, but I keep trying. And I think my writing as a result is better than it would be if I gave up on the effort. John, I want to ask, I was paging through the book that was available today that you wrote uh, in, in collaboration with Philip Johnson yes. uh, called uh, Against All Gods, What's Right and Wrong About the New Atheism. And we were just, uh, atheism came up uh, just a moment ago in the discussion here. And and I noticed that in, in the book, there was a chapter that you had contributed on beauty. Right. And I wonder what is the relationship there between uh, perhaps beauty and maybe apologetics. Do you do you believe that beauty is is part of creation uh, that points us towards the divine? Yeah, I I think um, three things are true. 
I think uh, if you think the idea of God is weird because God is immaterial and you believe that numbers exist, which most mathematicians do, then I don't know why you think an immaterial God is weird. So most people already believe in immaterial objects, namely numbers. Uh, Now, that's not God. That doesn't get you to God, and it doesn't get you to Jesus. But people need to get over the fact that everything has to be material to exist. Lots of things exist that are immaterial, uh, namely ideas and mind, in my opinion, uh, isn't just a brain. And so if you get to that point of view, uh, then it's kind of hard to be an atheist. That, that kind of sets people up to believe in some kind of God, even if it's the God of deism. Now, objective beauty would be just like that. Most of us are taught that the world is red in tooth and claw, a kind of misuse of the Darwinian story. Uh, I think for a lot of Victorians, deep time. There's this wonderful image of a little girl playing on the beach next to the entire fossil record of death. And this notion of deep time just freaked Victorians like Tennyson out. And they, it was hard to believe in beauty anymore because there was this deep ugliness. Well, forget about uh, whether evolutionary theory is true or not. Let's assume it's true because that's the scientific consensus for the moment. Um, that's a terrible way to tell the story. There's a different way of telling that story of cooperation and development and growth and fecundity, uh, the production of children and cooperation and environments have to be thought of as ecological zones, not just individuals fighting with each other. And deep time is beautiful. Why is deep time terrible? Yeah, I'm only going to live 75, 85 years on this earth and there have been billions and billions of years prior to me. Why does this freak me out? Uh, I'm not sure why the Victorians reacted the way they did, but I think it's because the way science was pitched to them. It was almost pitched uh, to make the world meaningless. And it's not surprising you get World War I out of that. John, we, t- we talk as well on the podcast from time to time about the state of education in, uh, in America, and you just chuckled a little bit, and I understand why. Uh, you're, you're part of uh, the St. Constantine School. As uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you're the president there. It's a little bit of a different take on education. Well, a, a little bit is probably not the right way to say it. It's quite a different take on education. Tell us a little bit about the St. Constantine School, what it is and why uh, why it exists. Well, I mean, one way to, to put it is that I think education as it exists in the United States was an awesome thing. It came out of the post-World War II generation. Uh, My family lived in the United States area for about 300 years, way back before the U.S. We didn't have access to education, except maybe up to the eighth grade at the most, right up to my dad's generation. The World War II generation, um, kind of by accident, created this K-16 through system that didn't exist before. High school wasn't necessarily designed to be, you know, the prelude to college. It was its own finishing place. People notice there's a lot of repetition. You know, why do we keep doing these same things over and over again? It's because you kind of went to high school. If you're going to be done with school at 18, go read Anne of Green Gables and her educational experience. Uh, Or you went to college. It's why so many people would go to college if they were from rich families at very young ages to learn to become a gentleman. Sadly, we didn't let women go to college uh, during that period of time. Well, we changed all of that. And we also pushed certain skills like nursing that could have been done in hospitals or law and made them very much collegiate oriented. And was that a good idea or not? It's not my job. It worked. 
We spent billions and billions of dollars, and it worked. It worked pretty well. Uh, we became the envy of the world, and it was economically pretty good. But notice it was always a strongly status solution. And, you know, technology has changed. Uh, a lot of repetition we no longer can afford. Uh, we keep adding more and more administrators to schools. And so the St. Constantine School is a moment where we say, okay, 70 years, 80 years have passed since the Second World War. If that greatest generation were thinking about education, what would they do now? Here's what they wouldn't do. They wouldn't destroy it by putting it online with like 600 kids for every professor in a kind of credential, you know, credentialism where we just all earn soulless degrees. I think what they would do is take the K through 16 experience, remove all the redundancy, center on teacher-student relationships, get rid of all the administrators you possibly can, and put generic K through 16, a baccalaureate degree, back in the churches and schools, uh, really where it should have been maybe to start with, and let universities focus on research and writing and highly specialized education. So I'm right next to Rice. Rice isn't going to close when I say colleges we know it must die. People think, well, you think Rice is going to die or Harvard? You know, they, they invented things at Rice that we use every day. That kind of college and university, Oxford, Cambridge, that's always going to go on. But that's not where most of us go. And that's not mostly what we got out of college. It's, you know, education for the 2%. Great. That should go on. I got some of that at the University of Rochester. Uh, for undergrad education, most of us need a good liberal arts education. We need to read well, write well, think well, be numerate, understand the scientific method, and become good citizens. And the truth is this can be done for about $12,000 a year if we eliminate all the administrators, all the bloat, uh, and we put all the power back, like Oxford and Cambridge used to do, in the hands of the teachers. Let me put it this way. Uh, we have administrators now who have administrators who have administrators who hire admins who then hire admins, and it just goes on and on. So uh, I'm not going to cite this school because it would sound like I'm being negative about this school. But at the last uh, job that I worked in in traditional education, I was the chief academic officer of a school. The entire academic budget ran through my office, I, secretaries, everything, uh, short of the facilities themselves. We were 31% of the university budget. And so people ask, okay, how can we do what we're doing at the St. Constantine School? Imagine eliminating the two-thirds of the budget that wasn't academic and leaving the academic part. We're fully accredited, regionally accredited. That's the gold standard. Uh, we're classical. Uh, you want to go be a nurse? Spend two years at the St. Constantine School and transfer to a fine nursing program and become a you know RNBSN. Uh, but for most people, most jobs that Reynoldses have now, uh, maybe with the exception of, of my job, uh, they had before we sort of credentialed everything. Uh, but now they have college degrees to do them and maybe thirty to forty thousand in debt. This would maybe okay if debt didn't keep exploding, administrators didn't keep exploding, and taxpayers weren't expected to pay for it. And more and more, it just became propaganda for leftism uh, because they're utterly unaccountable at this point to consumers and, and to people. And this isn't about quality. This is about you know ideological indoctrination. So the St. Constantine School is an attempt to uh, flip all of that over 
uh, by being as inexpensive as something like Lone Star College, the community college in the area. But people can pick, you know, to sit in a small room with three kids and an Ivy League trained professor discussing great texts. And if you prefer to go to the local community college and get indoctrinated with evil, uh, then great. Uh, we're not trying to close the local community college except by out-hustling and out-competing it. Which is the way it should be. Um, I have to admit, when you when you mentioned uh, the 30% figure, I, I just had this image in my mind of all the money, all the money that we spend on education in our society at the federal and state level, and yes. it just, I, I shuddered. <laughs> I, I mean, here here's the question. Uh, I always get accused of, well, are you against public schools and public school teachers and all of that. And here's when I know. I never met a public school teacher in Houston who was overpaid. I mean, there must be some. And there are so many of the classrooms, they have no textbooks. But I don't spend per student what those schools are spending. Now, I also realize I don't have to deal with some of the same students. I, I get all of that. It's a complex uh, system. But I can tell you this. I can take a kid uh, who doesn't even have money to bring lunch to school. These are the real people at the real St. Constantine School and give them a better education for less money inside my little private system than they're getting at the highly funded HISD. This is not the problem of the teachers. It's a systematic problem, and it's a problem of administrators. I mean, bluntly, the biggest buildings in some districts like L.A. Unified is the giant skyscraper chock-a-block full of administrators. But then I would go down to Compton, and I'd talk to the parents down in Compton, and their kids would learn ever more like bizarre sex education things in schools without textbooks. And with teachers who you know were spending all their paychecks to buy pencils. Now, don't tell me for the thousands of dollars that are being spent, that the problem is the parents, the parents I talked to wanted to do right. Now, lots of parents didn't. Is there a way to free the parents who want to do right to take the money that they're, is being spent on their kids and go someplace where they can do well? Uh, and it's all, I, I have so many idealistic friends that say, well, then you're going to warehouse all the bad kids and it's going to be a big problem and what will happen to the bad kids. In one way, that is a big problem and we should deal with it. But before we deal with that problem, let's stop destroying the kids that could learn. Let's stop destroying the families that do want their kids to escape what amounts to educational malpractice. I, I had a student sit in a college class I taught, again, I, I won't name the school, who absolutely brilliant, attractive person is going to go on, will be mayor of the city that I was in. And I got to the end of the class, and for the first time, he looked at me and said, oh, I get it, Reynolds. You think I should go to school to learn. And this is a person, you know, K through 12, government school, had essentially bluffed their way through the entire thing by being charming and not a drug user. So if you were charming and not a drug user and mostly did what you were told, you weren't going to fail. So, but, but you haven't earned anything that, that's worth anything well, either. Well, as far as I could tell, the person knew nothing. They were a charming semi-literate, and they were not going to learn the language of power. Uh, you, might has, you might as well have taken that student and told them, you're going to work for the DMV. Uh, and in fact, in many of the schools that I would visit in California, the aspiration of the valedictorian was to get a job at the DMV. 
Oh, man. Well, it, I hate to wrap up on that note, but I, I'm being informed <laughs> that, that we, we could go on save for a us, long time. Save us, Betsy DeVos. <laughs> but we, we got to make sure you get to the airport on time. So uh, I, I want to take a moment just to thank you. John Mark Reynolds, uh, president of the St. Constantine School. You can find more information online at stconstantine.org. Spell yes. it out, St. Yep. Constantine. And uh, Father Ben Johnson as well, thank you uh, for sitting in with us. And, and both both of you gentlemen, thank you. Uh, John, we wish you well in your work at St. Constantine. Uh, I'd love to come back if you'll have me. We'd love to have you. All right, thank you. That's our podcast for today, folks. Thanks for joining us. I want to thank uh, Dr. John Mark Reynolds one more time. Uh, great podcast guest, great guest in general here at the Active Building. And you can find out more about his work at the St. Constantine School at stconstantine.org. Spell it all out, stconstantine.org. Thanks again, Dr. Reynolds, for joining us. It was great to have you. Father Ben Johnson as well, thank you for joining us here in the studios to help out with the interview. Great to have you, and we look forward to talking with you again on Radio Free Acton. And, of course, we thank you for joining us. Uh, Podcasts uh, are great, but uh, if they don't have listeners, they don't mean all that much. So we appreciate you taking the time to join us. If you know of anybody else who maybe doesn't know about the work of the Acton Institute, doesn't know about our efforts to build uh, and reinforce the foundations of a free and virtuous society, pass along the links to uh, to Acton's Power Blog and uh, let them know uh, that they can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast on iTunes, what are you waiting for? Get over there and do that. Search for Radio Free Acton and hit that subscribe link. Uh, and we will keep working on building the foundations of a free society. We appreciate you joining us in that effort. Thanks once again for joining us today, folks, and we will talk to you again on future editions of Radio Free Acton. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs>